Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. But then a verse later, in verse 9, it says, Some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. The Christians in that day, it was called the way. Right, the, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." So that they had this 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 title, followers of the way, and so uh, it says that these Jewish people, mainly, that didn't believe here in these synagogues, they started speaking evil of the way before the multitude, and so then Paul departed from them. He withdrew all those disciples, those that came to faith in Christ, and he went next door and was re, or he went and was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, and he did that for two years. And if you jump down to verse twenty in Acts chapter nineteen, it says the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, and it was mainly among the Gentiles, mainly among the Gentiles. The Gentile church in Ephesus just exploded. Well. As we talked about last week, there was a silversmith by the name of Demetrius, and he and other people of like trade, of like occupation, started a riot against Paul and the disciples. Why? Well, there's actually a core reason, a core issue behind it, and the core issue is this. The kingdom of darkness was being invaded by the kingdom of God, and Satan, the enemy, was feeling threatened. That's the core. You know, when you get attacked by different things, different people and stuff, you know, yeah, maybe somebody is attacking you, but, you know, quite often there's a spiritual reason behind it. And so there was a spiritual reason. The kingdom of darkness is being invaded by the kingdom of God in Ephesus. But the vehicle of spiritual warfare were these businesses that were receiving profit off of the, off of the sin and the, and the, um, uh, the bondage. Of, of the believer of the people there, uh, because what was happening was they were getting profit from all these people that were buying these trinkets of the of the uh, uh, shrine to Diana, but then all of a sudden these people are getting saved and no one's buying those trinkets anymore. So it started hitting them in their pocketbooks, and they, of course the enemy used that as a way to uh, uh, wreak havoc among the church there. Why were they losing business? Well, it's because lives are being transformed. We talked about that last week. It wasn't a top-down transformation where you know the leaders of, Rome, or of Ephesus got saved and then they, they passed some laws and, or they outlawed the worship. No, it wasn't, it wasn't a top-down transformation. Laws weren't being changed. It was at the grassroots individual level. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking at the, the laws that are being passed that are just, they're evil. And the things that are being taken place in our, in our society and you know what we really need? It's not a top-down transformation. We need a grassroots, individual transformation in the lives of people. Erwin Lutzer, I'm reading a book called No Reason to Hide. He quotes a guy by the name of James Emery White. He's a pastor. And he asks this question. He says, is the ultimate goal a Christian nation or a nation of Christians? You have to think about that. The goal really should be a nation of Christians from the grassroots level because that's when things are going to change. J. Sidlow Baxter in the book 
uh, in the Explore the Book, uh, has this following comment. He says, while regeneration and revival are the sovereign act of God, evangelism is the constant obligation of the church. That doesn't change, ever. It doesn't matter what your culture, what your society is, it doesn't change. The church should be evangelizing. And so that would be probably one of the things you'd want to check off on a church, right? The church should be active in evangelism, both personal and hopefully corporate. Well, verse 1, it says, When the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So he had spent two years here evangelizing the area, teaching and discipling and serving the, the believers there. And then Paul felt led to leave Ephesus for Corinth. Now, it wasn't because of the, out, it wasn't because of the uproar. It wasn't that he was leaving like, man, things are getting really bad. I've got to leave here. It wasn't for fear. He didn't leave in haste. In fact, God fought the battle for Paul. Paul didn't even have to go into the theater there. He wanted to, but the disciples were like, don't go, Paul. They're going to rip you apart. Um, God fought the, God used the, 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 uh, the uh, whatever the guy's name was, the clerk of the city to actually stop the riot. So in Ephesus here, the unbelieving Jews spoke evil of the way before the multitude and Demetrius and other unbelieving Gentiles had caused a great commotion about the way. And so Paul is probably thinking, you know, if the believers in here in Ephesus are experiencing spiritual warfare like this, I wonder how the other churches are doing. The churches in Macedonia. You know, Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul wasn't one of these guys that was just a numbers guy. Go in there, you know, let's start up a church. Let's write, okay, we got that many more believers that we can, we can boast about or something. No, he cared about every single believer that came to faith in the Lord. He cared about those little churches that little or large didn't matter. He cared about them. And so I think that's why Paul wanted to leave. He wanted to find out, I wonder how these other churches are doing. If, if Ephesus is having this much of warfare going on, this, this much, I wonder what these other believers are doing. And so Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them. You can just imagine the scene there, two years with these guys, just watching these, these people that were idolaters, you know, that were, you know, whatever they were prior to Christ, seeing their lives change, watching them grow in the Lord. You could just imagine what Paul's heart was like. You know, the hardest separation comes from those you've been in fellowship with. We've moved back and forth across the country a few times. And, you know, it's, it's not the area that we care leaving, but we always are like, man, well, we miss those friends of ours. Those people that we served alongside. The people that we, maybe we've cried tears with. Or we rejoice with. Things were just great, you know. Things, people that we've lived our life alongside. It, those are the hardest people to leave. Matthew Henry said this, Loving friends know not how well they love one another till they come to part. And then it appears how near they lay to one another's hearts. And that's so true. This morning, do you feel lonely? Do you feel like maybe, you know, it's like, well, if I wasn't here, nobody would even miss me. I mean, they don't, people don't even notice that I'm here. Well, let me ask you this. Are you developing deep friendships with the people here? 
are you, uh, you know, are you involved? Are you living your lives among one another here? You see, those deep friendships, they come from ministering in fellowship with others and from you opening your heart and lives to others. Some people come and they go, I just said, well, nobody's talking to me. Oh, yeah, and we, you know, that's one of the things we really try. And hopefully, hopefully we're doing that. Hopefully this is a friendly church. I've been to churches before where you go in there and nobody talks to you. And that's kind of an awkward thing, especially if you're a first-time visitor. It's like, nobody, it's like I've been to other churches that are so large, they don't know if you're a visitor or not. And I've been going here for three years. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that, you know. But we know when people come here and they're new, right? You know that. And so hopefully we're a friendly church. But, you know, some people sit back and that's one of their checklists. Well, nobody talked to me. Well, how about you? <laughs> are you talking to anybody? Are you, are you getting involved with the church here? And so here's another checkoff. The church should be a place where solid, lasting, meaningful friendships are formed. I mean, that's one of the purposes for the church, fellowship. So verse 2, it says, Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed uh, three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul here stopped in all these different cities of Macedonia where the churches he had founded were, and it says he encouraged them with many words. Does that mean Paul was just a talker? <laughs> he just talked a lot? You couldn't get a word in edgewise? What does it mean to encourage with many words? I think we get a clue in his letter to the Thessalonians, First Thess which was one of the cities of Macedonia. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, Paul writes this, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So these many words that Paul spoke, what did he do? Well, first of all, he exhorted the Thessalonians and the other churches too, not just Thessalonica. Exhorted means to call upon someone to do something or to admonish and John Gill says this, to admonish, to flee from the wrath to come and to Christ for refuge. To look to and believe in Christ. To continue in the faith. To abide by the truths and ordinances of the gospel they had embraced. These are the things that Paul would say to them. But not only did he exhort them, but he comforted them. And that basically means to encourage them. Now with regard to sin... What an encouraging thing to hear a pastor or a, or a brother or sister in the Lord. You know, you confess, you know, I blew it this week. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, you can encourage one another. Hey, you've blown it? Man, isn't God good? He forgives sin. You know, those sins, you don't have to walk around with the shame of what you've did. You don't have to walk around. You can let that go because Jesus Christ doesn't remember it. He's forgiven it. He's cleansed it. He's removed our sin. We're justified in his presence. So you can comfort people regarding sin. Not comforting them like, eh, it's okay, it's cool that you sin. No, no, no. You can comfort them when they confess, right? When they repent. But also you can comfort them with regard to suffering. How many times have you heard somebody in this church go through something really difficult? I know there's people even today that are going through very difficult times. Now we can comfort one another. We can remind 
our brothers and sisters about the exceeding great and precious promises of God's presence, his grace, and the strength of Christ in our trials. This is some of the things that Paul would have said when he spoke many words. And then the other thing he did was he charged them. That word means to be a witness or to bear witness. I like what Adam Clark says, that he charged them he, to continue uh, he continued to witness to the people that all the threatenings and promises of God were true. In other words, you know, don't be in sin because, you know, warning them, I guess. Um, that he required faith, love, and obedience. That he could not behold sin with allowance. That Jesus died to save them from their sins and that without holiness, no one should see God. These are the kind of things that Paul would have, when he encouraged them with many words, these were the things, type of things Paul would have said. And he says, as a father does his own children. Now you fathers here this morning, I'm a father, I'm actually a grandfather. And uh, you know, my heart's desire for all my children, all my grandchildren, is that they love the Lord. I don't care if they are on unemployment the rest of their lives or they're, you know, garbage collectors. No, no if, if no one's a garbage collector, I mean, whatever, you know what I mean? I don't care what they do. All I care about is, man, do they love the Lord? Do they love the Lord Jesus? Do they serve him? That's what a father cares about. You know what Paul's goal? He describes it in Colossians 1.28. It says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect. And that means complete. Man, we, want to, we don't want to hold back anything. We want to teach you everything that you can do in your life to be able to be complete in Christ Jesus. And so here's another check off. The church should be a place where you can be built up and encouraged with solid preaching and teaching of the word of God. Hopefully that would be like a major one, right? It's like if they don't, you know, that would be, a, hopefully if you're visiting churches and you're looking, for, hopefully that's one of them, you know, that's some good Solid biblical teaching. Well, after encouraging the Macedonian churches, Paul went to Greece, and it says he stayed there for three years. And he was about to sail to Syria. Now, his goal was to get to Jerusalem, but he found out about this plot that the Jews were going to do something there. It doesn't say. Maybe they were going to sabotage the ship. Maybe they were going to, as soon as they get out on the open seas, attack it, you know, like pirates would do, and, and uh, you know, maybe kill them on the voyage. And if you think about it, Paul had an offering. He had money, contributions from all these different churches in Macedonia and elsewhere that he was bringing to the, to the struggling uh, believers in Jerusalem who were just going through a, such a difficult time. And so he had this large amount of money with him, too. And so probably for safety's sake, he decided to go back on land through Macedonia. And then he planned to sail from Troas, which we'll get to a little bit later, to Syria. Verse 4. And Sopator, Sopator of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus the of the Thessalonians. And Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Why did these young men accompany Paul? I think there's three reasons. The first reason, again, like I mentioned, he had this money with him, and it was taken from all these different churches to be delivered to the Christians 
in Jerusalem. And so I think one of the reasons was probably accountability. Accountability. Notice that these companions were all from cities that he had visited during his missionary journeys. Like one guy from this guy, one guy from that church. So I think if one of the reasons was accountability. I think another reason was protection. In 2 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 28, Paul talks about being in peril of robbers. And we know historically in those mountain regions, when you get away from the city, there were robbers. So, and he's got this chunk of change with him. However much, you know, whoever. So probably for protection, you have more people with you. But I think the main reason was discipleship. I think that's the main reason. Because that Greek word that says they accompanied Paul, what it really means, what you, what you can translate it is they stuck with Paul. They followed him closely. Wherever Paul went, these guys went. That, that, that's kind of a picture of discipleship. You see, these young men were learning from Paul. Think about it. They were in a traveling seminary. They were getting on-the-job training of the things of Christ. They were watching Paul, what he would do, when he would do those things, and how he would minister, how he would do those things. Paul was setting an example for them. Basically, as Paul is, is ministering, as Paul's doing things, they're watching. How do you apply these truths in your life? And so they, they're watching Paul, how to be faithful to their calling. Paul wrote this to second, uh, in Timothy, 2 Timothy, excuse me, to Timothy, who, by the way, is one of these guys. Chapter 2, verse 2, And the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's reproduction, spiritual reproduction. That's what discipleship is. It, it's, it's raising and training up people that are going to follow Christ too, that they can follow Christ on their own, and hopefully they get enough that where they can start, you know, being able to raise up people around them and disciple people around them. Well, we got all these names of these guys. Who were these young men? And more importantly, what was the fruit of discipling them? Well, the first guy is mentioned as Sopater, or Sopater. He's, we find out he's a believer from Berea. Remember the Bereans? They were the guys that did the Bible studies, right? It's like, Paul, we believe what you're saying, but you know what? We're going to check it out ourselves. That's what these guys were like. Hopefully Sopater was like that. It's possible he could be the same person as Sosipater that's described in Romans 16.21. There's only two times we hear about either Sopater or Sosipater. And then in Romans 16.21, Paul says this, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. And we say, wait a minute, Sopater's from Berea, and Paul was from Saul of Tarsus, you know. Uh, what does he mean, a countryman? And some people think probably like my brother in Christ. Could be. That's all we know about Sopater. The next guy, however, Aristarchus, he's a Thessalonian. We, we actually have quite a few scriptures that mention him. His name, by the way, means the best ruler. And I always, you know, I never took Latin or anything like that, um, but I like etymology. The word, is that what it's called? Where you're, the name studies? Is that etymology? Yeah, some, okay, thanks. I like studying the history of how names are formed. And so I look at that and I, I think of aristocrat. And I don't know if that's where they get the word from, but um, it could be that this guy Aristarchus was of kind of nobility, not necessarily nobility, but, you know, upper crust. 
in Thessalonica. Could be. You guys like, well, he's definitely not a Greek scholar. <laughs> in Colossians 4, it seems to allude to the fact that he's of Jewish descent. We know from Acts chapter 19 that he is one of those seized by the angry mob in Ephesus. We also know in Acts chapter 27, this is towards the end of Paul's ministry, he accompanied Paul the prisoner to Rome, which also means that he suffered that same shipwreck that Paul did. And they, got, they, got, they ran aground there at the Isle of Malta. In Colossians 4.10, Paul describes Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. In Philemon 1 verse 24, he's referred to his fellow laborer. So we have quite a bit about Aristarchus. He followed Paul in all his journeys. He ministered to Paul in prison. He assisted Paul in preaching the gospel in Rome, and that might have been why he was imprisoned as well, fellow prisoner. Tradition, not the Bible, but tradition, church history, says that Aristarchus was martyred in Rome under Nero. So that's what we know about Aristarchus. The next Thessalonian, or Thessalonian, I should say, is a guy by the name of Secundus. He was like Aristarchus from Thessalonica. His name literally means second. I have this. It says, Secundus was a common name for a slave because they were often not called by their true names and the first ranking slave in a household would often be called Primus. The second ranking slave was often called Secundus. So you think about that. If Aristarchus was, you know, upper crust, you know, uh, upper class, or whatever you want to call it, and Secundus, if he had been a slave, and they're both from Thessalonica, isn't that a beautiful thing? Colossians 3.10 or 3.11 talks about in the body of Christ says there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And so if it's true that one was upper class and the other is a servant or a slave, man, they're coming together to minister side by side. I think that's beautiful. I also am really taken by the name Secundus, second. You know, it talked about if he was in fact a slave, the first slave or the first servant would be called Primus. So he's not even the first slave. He's the second slave. I mean, he's like second of the second. You know, he's like as low as you can go probably, unless there was a thirdus guy. I don't know if there's a thirdus, but. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Calvary Chapel, hopefully other church, hopefully every church is, but one of the things that Calvary Chapel, I think, is kind of a, a focus is servant leadership. You know, leaders aren't here to lord it over you. Uh, we don't have, I, you know, I, I, I've been visiting different churches and, uh, you know, you pull up in a parking lot and right close to the door, the, the, the main door is pastor's parking and the pastor's wife's parking and, you know, the head usher's parking. It's like, wow, you know, that's nothing wrong with that. But it's just like, you know, the whole concept is we're just servants. We're second you know, uh, Chuck Smith, uh, his assisting pastor for many, many years, uh, has gone to be with the Lord by the name of Romaine. Romaine wrote a book called Second. And if you ever want to find out what it means to be a second, man, I encourage you to read that book. It's, 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 it's 
really written towards assisting pastors and people that are there in ministry serving. But it, it, there's just some cool concepts in there. So anyways, Secundus was a servant, or at least that's his name implies. Then we get Gaius. Now there's several references to Gaius in the New Testament. And, you know, Gaius was a common name in the Roman Empire. So it's possible that there's different Gaiuses that are being referred to in all these different scriptures. It's possible. Here we read of Gaius of Derby. In Acts chapter 19, verse 29, he's described as a Macedonian. And to me, you know, I, I, I go, yeah, okay, they, they could be different people. But, you know, to me it's like I don't know that God would mention people by name if there wasn't some significance to it. So I happen to think that that's probably the same person. You go, well, wait a minute. How could he be Gaius of Derby and then be called a Macedonian in the next chapter or in the chapter before? Well, he could be of Derby by birth, right? And he could be living in Macedonia. And to me, that doesn't seem a stretch, especially because I was born in Canada, hey? I was. But I've lived, uh, uh, but I grew up in California, dude. And yet here I live in Minnesota, you betcha, <laughs> you know? And on top of that, I'm first-generation Dutch, so definitely pray for Teresa. <laughs> pray for my wife, man. Um, but I can identify with that, right? I've got all these different things. My life is really messed up. But... Gaius, along with Aristarchus, was the other guy that was dragged into the amphitheater in Acts chapter 19. Romans 16.23 describes a Gaius that I think, again, I think, my opinion, uh, doesn't mean much, but that's my opinion, is that it's the same person. Paul describes him. He says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. This guy was hospitable. This guy opened up his home. He had the gift of hospitality. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So he's one of the ones that was could actually say, yeah, I was baptized by Paul. Um, not that that should be any kind of a thing, you know, but... But he was one of the few people, this Gaius anyways, that was baptized. John, in 3 John 1 verse 1, says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Again, I don't know if it's all the same person or not. I'd like to think that it is. And if it is, man, what, doesn't it paint a beautiful composite of what this guy was like? Well, the next guy you probably all know is Timothy. There's many, many references to Timothy in the New Testament. We know that he was a native of Lystra. We know that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Eunice taught him the scriptures. He got saved. He became a friend and trusted co-worker of Paul. In fact, Paul said, man, there's nobody like Timothy. Nobody who has the same heart that Paul had. He felt that no one had any, any more compassion and commitment than Timothy. Then we get a guy by the name of Tychicus. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes him as a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. In Colossians 4, he calls him a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And just like Timothy, Tychicus was one of these guys that Paul trusted he could hand off things to Paul and just try, or hand off things to Tychicus and just trust that he would be faithful to complete it. That's quite a quality, faithfulness. 
Then we get a guy named by the name of Trophimus. And I think this guy was into health food because his name means nutritious. Um, so I don't know. Probably, you know, vegan or who knows what. Um, what do we know about him? Well, we know he's a Gentile from Ephesus. And he's one of these guys that accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. What's interesting is that when Paul ended up going to Jerusalem, Trophimus, again, was a Gentile. And uh, Paul got accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And that was this Trophimus. They saw Paul hanging out with this guy, and that, that was the accusation. He's, he's bringing Gentiles, which would have been like defiling the temple, basically. That was this guy. He may have also been the same Trophimus that Paul left sick in Miletus. It's described in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. So there was fruit from discipling these guys, man. They lived their lives. They, they served. They ministered. I don't know for a fact, but my guess is all of them were martyred for their faith too because so many believers were martyred in those days. Well, here's another thing for a checkoff list. A church should be a place where there is an opportunity for discipleship. You know, we all should be in somewhere in the, in, we should be somewhere on the scale of discipling. If you're a newer believer, a younger believer, really you should be discipled by somebody. And if you are more of a mature believer, you should really be thinking about discipling others. Just like Paul did. Paul, discipling is not like, okay, guys, uh, I, I want to get together with you and we're going to sit down and disciple. So get out your note and write discipleship. We're going to just, no. You know what it is? It's just serving alongside. It's just having a shadow following you around, learning how you live your life practically. That's what discipleship is. It could be calling up someone and saying, hey, uh, you know, I've got this thing I got to do. Do you want to hang out with me and, you know, just talk with me while I'm doing it or, or maybe. Can you help me with this or something? That's a discipleship too. A church should be a place where there's an opportunity for discipleship. Verse 5, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Uh, this we, of course, is Luke, right? Luke's the narrator of, of the book of Acts. So Luke is, is, is including himself here. He's the one that sailed away from Philippi uh, during the days of unleaded, uh, unleaded, unleaded bread. <laughs> Unleavened bread. I don't think I would taste too good. I don't know. Um, it's interesting because back in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, Paul and his companions sail from Troas to Philippi. So they're going the opposite direction and they made the voyage in two days. And now they're going the opposite direction from Philippi to Troas and it ends up taking five days. Well, of course, they were sailing vessels, right? So they probably had a headwind or something, but just kind of an interesting thing. Verse seven. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There's some interesting things in here. First of all, this is the earliest and unmistakable record of Sunday being the regular meeting day of the early church. And if you look in the early church writings of the early church fathers, it confirms that the church, the first century church, they continued to meet on Sunday even after the New Testament period uh, commenced. 
The reason why the church chose to meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, was it was a perfect way to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Because he rose on the first day of the week. So you and I as believers, we're technically celebrating the resurrection of Christ 52 times a year, right? Every Sunday we gather together, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know, in reality, for you and I as believers, every day, is a resurrection day. Every day is. I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning you wake up, that's a new day, a new opportunity to love the Lord, a new opportunity to minister to your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, whatever, a new opportunity to serve the Lord, and a new opportunity to glorify God in whatever you do that day. We get those opportunities over and over and over and over again. Every day is a resurrection day for you and I as believers. Well, in the time period of this record, what we're reading here in Acts, Sunday was not like we have today, right? This is a day off for some people. I know there's some people that work on Sundays, but Sunday was not a day off. So the believers would meet after work, especially now two-thirds of, of the Roman Empire were slaves, a lot of slaves. And so they would have to work during the day because it wasn't a day off. And so there would be, uh, you know, they would, after, after work was when they would uh, gather together to meet. And so, also, in this time period, there's no church buildings like we have right here. They probably gathered in upper rooms of private homes. And it says that the, disciple, or the disciples gathered weekly to break bread. Uh, William Barclay says this. In the early church, there were two closely related things. There was what was called the love feast. We know it as the agape feast. To it all contributed. And it was a real meal. Often it must have been the only real meal that poor slaves got all week. It was a meal when the Christians sat down and ate in loving fellowship and sharing with each other. During it, or at the end of it, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was observed. It may, now this is what he's writing, and I, I've, he's, he's been dead and gone for a long time. But he says this, It may well be that we have lost something of very great value when we lost the happy fellowship and togetherness of the communion meal of the Christian fellowship. It marked as nothing else could the real homeliness, the real family spirit of the church. Again, he wrote that, I don't know when William Barclay was alive, but it was a long time ago. And so in his day, in his age, churches didn't have potlucks or agape meals or whatever you want to call it, fellowship meals, evidently, at least where he went. And I know a lot of New Testament churches, a lot of evangelical churches, they have potlucks. We have them here. Every third Wednesday of the month, we have a potluck in the evening. It's a great time. Breaking bread with one another, eating a meal, it's such a good way to, to get to know people in that fellowship that you can have. And of course, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper today after the, after the service, after the teaching. So Paul was planning to leave the next day. And again, like, you know, he's exhorting, he's comforting, he's charging these believers like a father would his children. And, you know, if you know you're leaving your son or your son's going off to college or in the military or they're going away, man, you want to impart as much as you can to them, right? I, wanna, I just want to download as much as I can into them um, so that they can go equipped. Well, Paul felt that way. He was getting ready to leave the next day. So he wanted to convey as much as he could 
to the believers at Troas as he could. So he spoke to them, he says, and he continued his message until midnight. We're going to practice that today. So um, we're going to give it a shot. See what, there's no windows. You guys can't. Well, there is, I guess, but you won't hurt yourself if you fall out. But kidding. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So it specifically says that there were many lamps in the upper room. Why were there many lamps in the upper room? Well, first of all, if you follow the timeline in the book of Acts, this is about two to three weeks after Passover. Passover was celebrated when it was a full moon. So this is the waning moon. It's you know, partway through the month. It's, it's a darker night, for one thing. But also, Christians were being accused of doing wicked things in their gatherings. There was all kinds of rumors and speculation of what those believers do. And so, man, for accountability, let's light up the room, man, so that nobody can think that we're doing anything wrong, you know. It's a good thing to have accountability. The result, however, these lamps were probably filled with oil and they had those flickering, uh, you know, wicks and smoked. And the room probably was stuffy smoky and the oxygen levels were probably optimal or not optimal they probably were you know a lower decreased oxygen interesting Eutychus name means fortunate <laughs> lucky guy <laughs> I guess because Paul was there but <clears throat> in verse 9 he's described as a young man and the Greek word is neonias which means a youth up to about 40 years old now I'm a little bit older, so I look at people that are 40, and I could consider them a youth. Um, but verse 12, the young man in verse 12 is another Greek word, and it's pais. And it means a boy, specifically a child. And so most scholars believe that Eutychus was either somewhere between 8 to 14 years old. That's what they think. It's interesting that pais, that word in verse 12, can also mean servant. And so it's possible he was a servant. And so if he was a servant, he probably finished working all day. And now he's coming to a Bible study, to a gathering, and listening to Paul preach. And, you know, the poor guy, he's sinking into a deep sleep. And you can imagine, yeah, probably fighting it off. I've seen that in people, you know, in churches, you know, and stuff. They're like... I've, I get some really, I should take pictures, man. It's, it's, it's cool. No one here this morning, but I've, I've had some really interesting things where it's like, man, I want to throw something in that guy's mouth, you know, because there's... <laughs> well, the guy's sinking into, he's probably fighting it off, but finally, man, he's just overcome by sleep, and he just falls out of the window, out of a third-story window. I love what J. Vernon McGee, how many of you guys know who J. Vernon McGee is? He's gone to be with the Lord, but man, his accent. When I first heard him, I got, man, this guy sounds so corny. I mean, I got, grew to really love this, the man. Um, but if you can just picture in your mind the way he speaks, and then listen to this, because I can't, I can't mimic it. He says, I confess that Paul's experience has always been a comfort to me. When I look out at the congregation and see some brother or sister out there sound asleep, I say to myself, it's all right. Just let them sleep. Paul put them to sleep too. <laughs> <laughs> so this Eutychus falls out of the window and by the way Luke the physician okay Luke the doctor 
says he was taken up dead. Some people say, well, you just got knocked out unconscious. No, the doctor, I'm going to trust his word. The guy's dead. He died. Verse 10, and Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, said, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. When Paul fell on him and embracing him, it seems very similar to two uh, very similar resurrections, if you could say, or raising back to life of two people, one that Elijah did and one that Elisha did. Elijah in 1 Kings 17, uh, the widow of Zarephath's son died, and he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And, and he came back to life. That was Elijah. Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, with a Shunammite woman's son, it says that Elisha went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. I always try to picture that in my mind. It's just like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Well, this seems similar to what Paul did. Eutychus was miraculously raised from the dead. Verse 11. Now when he had come up, had broken and eaten, uh, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. That's kind of a, you know, it's like the Bible sometimes, uh, you know, they really kind of minimizes. When it says not a little comforted, they were like very comforted. <laughs> So it's interesting here, if you get this picture of what's being described here, Paul's preaching late into the night, Eutychus falls out of the window, dies, he's miraculously brought back to life, they bring Eutychus back upstairs, and Paul switches from preaching, because if you look at the Greek, he switches from preaching to talking, basically discussing. It's like that he was preaching up until midnight, or up until the time Eutychus dies, and then he's brought back to life. He goes back up there, and now they're doing a Bible study, an application, maybe discussing what Paul had preached. And it continues till daybreak. What's interesting is why does Luke not elaborate on the miracle? I mean, this is like one of those big things, right? I mean, this would be like, let's, you know, why didn't the believers in the house break out in like an Asbury-style worship the rest of the night, you know? Let's just worship the Lord, you know, and, and, and you know, rightly, rightfully so, right? Why did Paul go right back to preaching and teaching the word? It was to teach Eutychus a lesson. No, I was kidding. No, why did he go right back to preaching and teaching? And I think this is why. Because experiencing, experiencing excuse me, supernatural signs and wonders, it's not going to sustain your faith. It's great if it happens. That's not going to sustain your faith. The teaching of the word of God, it's God's word that sustains you and I. It's not the miracles. I, write, I like what the psalmist says, Psalm 138.2, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your name, excuse me, for you have magnified your word above all your name. And here's a good checkoff list, right? A church should be a place where the miraculous takes place. We believe in healing. We believe that God, we believe in the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. They, they are for the church today. We believe in it. A church should be a place where the miraculous takes place, but that should never be the emphasis and the focus. The emphasis and the focus should always be on God's word. 
And so that's a good thing to check off, right, for a church. Is the church's emphasis on the word of God, are they always chasing after the latest spiritual, you know, get a kind of a emotional high kind of a thing? You know, I see a spiritual lesson in the story of Eutychus as well. I thought about this. Why didn't all the other believers fall asleep? And I think it was because they were hungry for the teaching of the word of God. And they were engaged in what Paul was teaching and what was going on in that gathering. And you know, to be honest with you, sometimes I see believers who are not as engaged in the life of the church. I mean, it's kind of a, every church I'm sure has that. Well, people kind of hang out in the periphery. You know, they might show up once or twice or once a month or whatever, but, but they're never really involved. They never get engaged. And eventually they start to gradually fall spiritually asleep and pretty soon it's like, where'd they go? They must have fallen out of a window. Eutychus was sinking into a deep sleep. The idiom, the Greek idiom means literally he was carried away by sleep. And the present tense describes Eutychus as gradually going into this deep sleep. And you know what that deep sleep is? The word is hypno, which is like hypnosis, right? It's figuratively, it describes a spiritual stupor. And I've seen that with people. Paul wrote this to the Romans, chapter 13, verse 11, and do this, knowing the time that now was high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And again, I see believers who are not engaged in the life of the church. And, you know, you start talking about the word of God and you see this glaze kind of go over their eyes. And eventually they fall out of fellowship and you start looking around. I haven't seen this person for a while. Where, where did they go? Well, Paul and perhaps others realized Eutychus had fallen out, so, out of the window. So what did Paul do? He went down. That Greek word means to descend. He came down to where Eutychus had fallen to. There's a spiritual picture there. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see somebody that's on the periphery of the fellowship and they fall away. They fall into some sin. They get messed up or something. What do you do? You go down to where they're at. You reach into the, where they're at. You go down to where they're at. Rather than just saying, yeah, they're gone. Forget them. Write them off. You know. No, you go down to where they're at. That's what Paul did. He went down. And then he fell on him. And that means to embrace. It could mean with embrace with it. With affection, you know, give him a big hug. But it also can mean to seize with more or less violence. And that's a picture too. Jude 1, 22 and 23. And some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Some people need to be grabbed. Man, you got, you're fallen. You, you need to get back right with the Lord. We need to grab them. And then he embraced him. And that word means to take by enclosing all together. That is to earnestly throw the arms about one another. You know, when somebody falls and they, they slip away, you know, it's easy to pass judgment on them. It's easy to go, Ugh, you know, especially depending on what they did. You know, man, man they, that's when they need the love of the fellowship more than anything else. That's when they need love. 
And so Paul embraced him. Eutychus, excuse me, Eutychus was restored to life and the believers, man, they are filled with joy. James 5, verse 19 and 20, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. God's in the business of reconciling and restoring people, and we should be too. A church should be a place where healing and restoration takes place. So going through this list, and I'll just kind of recap. The church should be a place where solid, lasting friendships are formed. A church should be active in evangelism. A church should be a place where there is an opportunity for discipleship. A church should be a place where the miraculous takes place, but it's not the emphasis and focus. The word of God is the emphasis and focus. And a church should be a place where healing and restoration happens. Now I wonder what some of you guys are thinking this morning. How does Calvary Chapel Rochester stack up against that? Maybe maybe you've been going down there, yeah, they don't have that on their list. Yeah, that, yeah I don't see that on the list. I say, oh yeah, I see that. But, you know, our, how do we stack up? It's kind of a trick question, <laughs> to be honest with you. Because if you're thinking, yep, they're missing that one. Yep, this church doesn't match it. You know, I've got news for you. The church is you. <laughs> the church is me. It's, it's us. We're the church. We're the body of believers. Now, teaching and preaching the word of God, that's one of the things, hopefully you've checked the, yeah, that's the, hopefully I'm doing that. That's my, that's my job, right? And keeping the focus, the emphasis on the word of God. There's things in here that are definitely the pastor, hopefully, and the leadership, we're responsible for. But let me ask you this. Are you developing friendships? Or are you just showing up and then going away? Are you developing friendships within the body of believers? Are you active in evangelism? You know, I was thinking about that. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, what outreaches are you doing? And we are going to be doing some outreaches this summer. But, you know, I think about the church in Ephesus. Did they have, like, concerts where they invited the unbelievers in? Or did they have a, uh, you know, some kind of a thing to, you know, get the unbelievers? You know what I think it was? Someone gets saved, and they go talk to somebody. Man, Jesus Christ just set me free. Hey, why don't you come out into the fellowship of the believers? I think that's what, how the church grew. It was by word of mouth. Are you guys doing that? Are you inviting people to church? We got enough room. Look around. <laughs> we, and we actually have more chairs in the back. We, can, we, can, we had more in the past, but before COVID, and then we, you know, thin, we culled the herd a little bit, so now we, <laughs> we can add them back in. Are you active in evangelism? Are you involved in some sort of, some aspect of discipleship? Are you coming, bringing people alongside or are you being discipled? Are you reaching out to those who are drifting asleep? And then for those of you that maybe are on the periphery, are you engaged in the life of the body? I mean, that's what the church is for. This isn't a spectator sport. We're all to be parts of the body of Christ. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer. And I'll have the worship team coming up.